Susan Berman had been murdered over Christmas. I, I couldn't understand how the mutual friends we had in Los Angeles couldn't have told us about it until January the 9th. So he told you that he was staying at the Beverly Hilton in Los Angeles at the time Susan Berman was murdered. Is that correct? Yes. Ma'am, at that time, did you think that was important information that the police might need to know? No. When you were telling her this, were you concerned that potentially that was going to be influencing a witness who was still in the middle of her testimony? I didn't think of that, no. Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. In this episode, we take a special deep dive into what we believe may be the most important moment in the 20-year history of this investigation and trial. The prosecution in the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of Susan Berman began calling witnesses on May 19, not including two days of witnesses before the pandemic hiatus. They are not likely to finish presenting their case before mid-August. The chatter among reporters covering the case and among many commentators on various legal news shows is that the prosecution is over-trying the case, that they are boring the jurors. But there is another way of looking at this. In this episode, we are going to speculate on the method of the prosecution's madness by examining why they would spend over a week offering proof of something that the defense has already admitted that Robert Durst wrote the so-called cadaver note and that he was in Susan Berman's home after she was dead. The short answer is this. The prosecution, we believe, wants the jury to understand that the single most important moment in all of the efforts to convict Robert Durst of murder came four years ago when one witness uttered three simple words, I don't remember. The longer answer comes after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In this episode, we're going to explore how one witness and three simple words, I don't remember, changed the course of the people's case against Robert Durst. We will also explore why the prosecution is going to such exhausting lengths to make sure that the jury understands this. In his opening statement, Deputy DA John Lewin introduced the cadaver note, a letter that was sent to the Beverly Hills Police informing them that Susan Berman was dead in her Benedict Canyon Drive home. The killer left a note, what's been commonly referred to as the cadaver note. Now, what has Mr. Durst's position been over the years when he has been interviewed, when he has testified under oath, 
This is what he said in 2010. Well, to begin with, you didn't write the, write the cadaver note, is that what you said? I didn't write the cadaver note. In 2012, he was asked again the same thing. So, I guess the question is, did you write the cadaver note? No, I didn't write the cadaver note. In 2015, after he was arrested and he was interviewed in New Orleans, you agree you did not just find Susan's body and somebody else killed her. I did not find Susan's body. So, Mr. Durst makes clear he did not write the cadaver note and he did not find Susan's body. That was his position until a couple of weeks before trial started. He admitted in a stipulation, yes, I wrote the cadaver note. But that's not the only thing about the cadaver note that becomes important. Because in 2012, Mr. Durst made clear. You're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. In 2015, the issue comes up again during his interview. What does he say? Whoever wrote the note was a part of killing her. Yes. You, you agree, right? Yes. No question, right? Whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death. Okay. After years of denying any involvement with this key piece of evidence, Robert Durst changed his story a mere two weeks before jury selection began. At that time, Durst's lawyer stated in stipulations that Durst had found Susan Berman's body and wrote the cadaver note. Defense attorney David Chesnoff acknowledged this verbally in the defense team's first opening statement last year. Yes, Bob found the body of Susan Berman on December 23, 2000, and he notified police of her body as he wrote what the prosecution calls the cadaver note. Dick DeGuerin also acknowledged the stipulation. Susie was alone. She had friends, but she and Bob were the closest of friends. Together they were planning in the fall of 2000 to spend a week or so in LA and in San Francisco. When Bob showed up and found her dead, he panicked. He wrote the anonymous letter so her body would be found, and he ran. He's run away all his life. If you were to hear only these statements, you might think that Bob acknowledged having discovered Susan Berman's body soon after her death, that the cadaver note was written in a moment of panic, but that soon after mailing it and fleeing, Bob acknowledged doing so and explained he only ran because he could see how bad it looked. But, as we heard earlier, Durst spent nearly 19 years denying that he wrote the note and denying that he was in Los Angeles at any point around the time of Berman's death. In fact, in his Texas trial for the murder of Morris Black, Robert Durst testified under oath. A woman who I had met at UCLA in 1965, Susan Berman. Even though she was in California and I was in New York, and I never went to Los Angeles, so even though I would go to California, I would, I would not go there to see her. We had seen each other infrequently, but we had stayed in touch by writing and telephone calls and like that. And 
we were still close. I could talk to her about things. Julie Baumgold and Nick Chavin, both of them left essentially the same messages that I should go to the LA Times on the internet that Susan Berman had been murdered over Christmas. I couldn't understand how the mutual friends we have in Los Angeles couldn't have told us about it until January the 9th. That was actor David Kelsey reading Bob's words from the transcript of Durst's Galveston trial testimony. From that moment in the fall of 2003, through his interviews with Andrew Jarecki in 2010 and 2012, and through his questioning by John Lewin in 2015, Durst denied having been in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's murder. And with all of the evidence that Durst's handwriting was extremely similar to the handwriting on the cadaver note, including the misspelling of the word Beverly, prosecutors still could not place Durst in or near Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's death. And that's where Emily Altman comes in. In your experience, has Bob Durst been able to establish close relationships with other people? I think he has with my husband, he has with me. Emily Altman is the wife of Stuart Altman, Durst's close friend from high school and the man who introduced him to his first wife, Kathy. Although Stuart Altman was Durst's lawyer on real estate matters, he and his wife Emily, who works as his secretary and office manager, maintained a close personal relationship with Durst as well. Durst was present at the birth of their son Howard, and the Altmans later named Durst their son's godfather. A video of Emily's conditional witness examination from July of 2017 was played for the jury last week. Who was there with you and, and Howard when he was born? My husband. Who else? Bob and Kathy. When you say Bob, you mean Bob Durst, I'm correct? sorry, Bob Durst and Kathy Durst. Uh, does Howard have a godfather? Yes. Can you explain what's a godfather in, in, in your definition? A godfather is someone in our understanding if both parents are not able to take care of a child, then it would be the responsibility of the godfather or godmother to do that. How significant of a position do you view personally as the appointment of a godfather for your only child? It's important. Fair to say it's about as important an honor as you can bestow on somebody? It's important. You know, there are... Who's godfather to your son? Bob Durst. Just ask me that. Bob Durst is my son's godfather. This was not the first time that Emily had gone on the record to state that she chose Robert Durst as her son's godfather. She previously discussed the matter on the television show 48 Hours. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin played a clip of that interview for the jury. It's a heavy responsibility to say to someone, will you be my child's godfather? It's not something to do lightly. And we chose Bob because we had the kind of thing that anything ever happened to us, Bob would be there to take care of our son. And I still believe the same way about him now. Quote, and I still believe the same way about him now. End quote. Lewin pressed Emily on how it was possible that her opinion hadn't changed 
given what she knew about Robert Durst at the time of the interview. And ma'am, it occurred after Mr. Durst had admitted that he had killed and dismembered his neighbor, correct? I don't understand that, Judge. Well, when you first heard, ma'am, that Mr. Durst had dismembered his neighbor, did you believe that that could have happened to Bob Durst, do you know? No. And you would agree that as you sit here today, ma'am, that is not an issue that's in dispute. In other words, no one's going to stand up here and tell you Bob Durst didn't dismember Morris Black. You know for a fact that that's what he did, correct? Yes. So, ma'am, is it fair to say then that you finding out that Mr. Durst had dismembered a body was not enough to change your opinion about whether or not Bob was a suitable person to take care of the heavy responsibility of being godfather to your child? The Bob Durst that was named godfather to my son was a really good person when it came to my son. Um, you have to take acts, and you can't judge a whole person by one act. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I certainly wasn't going to say, God, no, you're not godfather anymore. It's this level of closeness and loyalty that may explain the lengths that Emily Altman and several others have gone to protect Robert Durst. At the heart of Emily Altman's testimony was the matter of where Robert Durst was during the time that Susan Berman was murdered. The first time Lewin asked Emily, this is how she responded. At the time that she was murdered, did you ask Bob about it? No, I don't recall speaking to him right after that. You knew who Susan Berman was when she got murdered, correct? Yes. By that time, you were well aware that Bob was a suspect in his wife, Kathy's disappearance, correct? Yes. So when Susan Berman was found murdered, shot in the back of the head, did you think at all, oh my God, did Bob kill her? No. Did that ever cross your mind? No. Can you tell me why? Um because the stories I heard was that her, her dad was involved in Las Vegas gambling and stuff, and I thought maybe, if she'd written a book, I thought maybe that's what happened to her. Lewin then tried a different tack, introducing a conversation Emily had with New York Times reporter Charles Bagley, who is now covering Durst's trial for The Times and CrimeStory.com, and from whom you will hear later in this podcast. Ma'am, have you ever told Mr. Bagley where Bob Durst was at the time that Susan Berman was murdered. I, I don't remember. I don't remember. In this moment, a door was opened for the prosecution. Let's unpack this. The answer implies that it was possible that Emily could have told Charlie Bagley where Durst was at the time of Berman's murder. And that implies that Altman knew where Durst was at the time of Berman's murder. Lewin asked her once again. Have you ever discussed with Mr. Badger, ever told him that you had information from Bob Durst, not necessarily as to whether Mr. Durst committed the murder, but where he was at the time of Susan Berman's murder? I'm sorry, I don't remember. Ma'am, so if you didn't have any information about 
from Robert Durst about where he was at the time of Susan Berman's murder, would your answer be, with reference to relating such information to Mr. Bagley, no, I didn't. No, what I'm saying to you is that I simply don't remember the conversations they had with Mr. Bagley. That's all I'm saying to you. So, ma'am, then, is what you're telling me that you could have had a conversation with Mr. Bagley where you related to him statements Bob Durst told you about where he was at the time of Susan Berman's murder? All I can tell you is that I don't remember what conversations I had with Mr. Bagley. You're going back a long time, and I don't remember. At this point, Lewin walked through the open door. As you sit here today, do you have knowledge of where Robert Durst was at the time of Susan Bergen's murder that you learned from Robert Durst in the course of your relationship as friends? At some point, I believe he said he was in California, whether it was San Francisco or another part of California. I think he called and said he was in California. Eventually, Lewin asked Emily Altman directly whether she knew if Robert Durst was in Los Angeles. Did Bob Durst ever tell you in the course of your relationship as friends that he was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's murder? I think he said he was in Los Angeles, Los Angeles excuse me, at some time, but I don't remember him specifically saying he was there when Susie Berman was murdered. When he's saying he's in Los Angeles, you're talking about at the time Susan Brown was murdered, correct? In December. So he said he was in Los Angeles in December of 2000, correct? Yeah. Did you ask him specifically what dates in December of 2000 he was in Los Angeles? Having established that Durst was in Los Angeles, Lewin then drilled down on where specifically he was staying. Did... Bob Durst tell you where he was staying in Los Angeles at this time? Did he mention a hotel or where? what he was doing here? I think he mentioned Beverly Hilton. I don't know if there's a hotel now. So he told you that he was staying at the Beverly Hilton in Los Angeles at the time Susan Berman was murdered. Is that correct? Yes. Ma'am, at that time, did you think that was important information that the police might need to know? No. Did it seem strange to you at all that he was in Los Angeles at the same time his best friend was shot in the back of the head? I don't have distance, but if it's the Beverly Hilton, approximately two miles from where she was killed? Did it seem strange to you when you heard it? No. At this point, Lewin revealed to Emily that she had just introduced information that Durst had not previously admitted to ever before. Ma'am, are you aware, as you sit here today, that Mr. Durst has never admitted to investigators or to the media that he was in Los Angeles in December of 2000? Are you aware of that? No, I'm not. But sometimes Bob says stuff that may or may not be true in So what you're saying is Bob Durst told you that he was in Los Angeles in December of 2000, but just because he said that, you don't know if it's true. 
We don't. I, I wasn't there. Can you think of a reason why Mr. Durst would want to have told you, I was in Los Angeles at the time Susan Berman was murdered, but that's not true. I can't get inside Bob's head. Emily Altman was on the stand for five grueling days. During cross-examination on the fourth day, a Thursday, she attempted to backpedal on the testimony she had given. Dick DeGuerin questioned her on two points relating to Durst's whereabouts at the time of Susan's murder, starting with the timing of the conversation. Is it possible that conversations that you had, uh, that you believe you had with Mr. Durst, uh, took place later than you testified yesterday. Yes, it's possible. Next, DeGuerin asked whether it was possible that Emily had mistaken the source of the information, specifically whether it was possible that Emily had received this news from her husband, Stuart, rather than from Bob directly. Is it possible that what you've related as hearing from Bob, you actually heard from Stuart? It's possible. Was Bob Durst a client of Stuart Alton? Yes. Now remember, it is the prosecution that is playing this as evidence for the jury. It demonstrates the lengths to which Durst's attorneys and his friends went to prevent a jury from hearing evidence that Bob was in close proximity to Susan at the time of her death. Finally, DeGuerin elicited from Emily a statement that she was now unsure if the information she had testified to the day before was true. The following Monday, when Emily returned to the stand, Lewin asked her about how and why her statements changed over the course of the time he was questioning her. You originally said that you had no memory of any conversation with Bob Durst at all about Susan Berman's murder. And then within the hour, you ended up saying your statement about you had the conversation in December of 2000. So my question is, what was it that made you remember that conversation? You didn't go home, you were still here in that less than an hour time frame, do you know? I don't know. I don't know what triggers memories. You're asking me to remember things that happened 16, 17 years ago. And I was really trying to answer you. And you're really intimidating. You are. Let's just, you know, be honest about that. And you're also scary. And I was really, really trying to answer you. And when I thought about it, I answered you incorrectly. I really did. Did I make a mistake? Yes. Was it wrong of me? Yes. I should have just said I don't remember. You ended it at that. But I didn't because I was dumb. Lewin next sought to understand why her testimony changed the day after he questioned her during DeGuerin's cross-examination. Would you concede, ma'am, that Bob Durst telling you I was in Los Angeles at the Beverly Hilton at the time or about the time that Susan Berman was murdered would be a very damaging statement. Yes. Is it your testimony as you sit here today that you honestly cannot remember whether it was your close friend Bob Durst who made that admission or whether you heard it from somebody else? Yes. If that was true, if you weren't sure that Mr. Durst made the statement, how come in the more than 10 times I asked you about this area on Wednesday, you never once responded, you know, I'm not sure if Bob is even the one who told me that. 
because when I had time to think about it, I thought I, I didn't remember whether it was Bob or I heard it elsewhere. So, ma'am, your testimony is you went back to your hotel on Wednesday night, correct? Yes. When you went back to your hotel room, isn't it true that you were aware that the statement you had related in court about having that conversation with Mr. Durst was extremely damaging to his position. Yes. In fact, ma'am, you were in court when Mr. DeGaran said, Your Honor, there's been very damaging testimony. Correct? You heard him say it. I don't remember. So it's your testimony. You don't remember Mr. DeGaran saying that? I'm sorry, I don't remember. Did you speak to your husband between the time you left court on Wednesday and the time you returned on Thursday? Did I speak to him? Yes. Early Thursday morning. I'm sorry? Early Thursday morning. Early Thursday morning. And ma'am, did you speak to him about your testimony? Yes. Ma'am? And during that conversation, is that when you, quote, remembered that it was actually Mr. Altman? who had told you what you had said, uh, Mr. Durst related? Is that when the idea came up? It wasn't an idea. What he said was that I was wrong. Did, did you ever, on Thursday morning, prior to Mr. DeGaran, suggesting to you that maybe you heard it from your husband, did you ever yourself, in any responses to any of his questions, ever say, you know what, I'm not sure whether in fact the conversation was with myself and Bob Durst? No. What did you and your husband discuss with respect to your testimony on Thursday morning? I told him what I had said, and he said that he remembered it differently. And so are you saying that it wasn't you that remembered, ma'am, all of a sudden, what happened? It was that your husband told you you were wrong. He didn't tell me I was wrong. Ma'am, I believe, I believe you said, you might no. even use the same words, ma'am, I believe you previously testified that he told you, in essence, you were wrong. I'm the one who told you that, not Mr. Durst. He remembered that he had told me about a conversation that he had. Ma'am, so isn't it true that the memory that, in fact, the statement had been made not from Bob to you, but from Bob to Stewart, came from Stewart and not from you? My husband, when he spoke to me, it's very possible that, that I was wrong, that I confused it. So it's not that he words in my mouth, and I think that's what you're trying to say, and that's not what happened. So listen to my question, ma'am. Prior to your husband saying that to you, your belief was you had heard it from Bob Durst, correct? Yes. And now your husband says, no, Emily, you heard it from me. Is that correct? It's not exactly what he said, no. What? Tell me exactly what he said. I can't. You'd have to ask him. No, I'm what asking, I, ma'am. I'm, I'm asking trying. You. I'm trying. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When the prosecution played the recorded testimony of Emily's husband and Bob's childhood friend, Stuart Altman, he began his testimony in a similarly evasive manner. But Stuart took great pains to make one thing emphatically clear. He proclaimed that he did not tell his wife that Bob Durst was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan's murder. Have you in any way discussed your wife's conditional examination with her? Yes, I Are you familiar with what she said during the conditional examination? We discussed some of the questions and answers. Do you remember any words at all that she related during the conversation? She was hysterical. She was blind. She was very upset. And she said to me, I'm so mixed up, I don't know. I think I made a mistake. I told Mr. Loon that Bob was in Los Angeles. I told him that I heard, found this out in 2000, the year 2000, in December. And I said, uh, it couldn't have happened like that. There's no way. And that's the key, so help me out. Did you tell her during that conversation words, in essence, that you did not hear that. This is you speaking. Emily, you did not hear that from Bob. You heard it from me. I said you didn't hear it at all from anybody. Not in December 2000. We had no idea where Bob was or what he was doing. Did you, at any point during the conversation with your wife, tell her that she had heard that statement from you? No, I never said she heard it from me. Are you saying, Mr. Altman, that you did not say to your wife during that conversation, in response, no, you did not hear that information from Bob. You did or might have heard that information from me. No. Altman went to great pains to assert that his wife had misremembered the information about Durst's whereabouts at the time of Susan's murder and any communication she may have had about those whereabouts. Lewin then asked Stewart if he was aware of the ethical issues of discussing witness testimony in the middle of an ongoing examination. Did you tell her during that conversation 
tell, convey, relate in any way that you were concerned that the answer she had given was harmful or damaging to Mr. Herbst? No. When this conversation took place, did Emily first express to you that she did not remember what had happened, or did you tell her, Emily, you're wrong about what happened? The latter. Okay, so without her expressing, Stuart, I'm wrong, your first statement to her in essence was, Emily, you're wrong about your testimony. Yes. When you were telling her this, were you concerned that potentially that was going to be influencing a witness who was still in the middle of her testimony? I didn't think of that, no. So you're a lawyer for 50 years almost, and you're talking to a witness in the middle of their testimony, telling them you're wrong about what you testified to. Is that correct? Correct. But it did not occur to you that in saying that, that you were potentially affecting that witness's testimony. Correct. The videotaped testimony of Emily and Stuart Altman was presented by the prosecution in conjunction with a good deal of other testimony and evidence, which, in their totality, suggests the great lengths to which Durst, his attorneys, and his closest friends were willing to go to hide the truth about Durst's whereabouts at the time of Berman's murder. Deputy DA John Lewin and his team seemed to be betting that the value of presenting to the jury overwhelming evidence of the intensity of Durst's efforts to hide that truth far outweighs the risks of boring the jurors. Coming up next, I will discuss the latest developments in this trial with my co-host Brittany Bookbinder, and we will also be joined by reporter Charlie Bagley, who will obviously have some interesting light to shed on the Altman's testimony. That's coming up right after the break. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com I'm joined now for our discussion of the week's events in the trial of Robert Durst by my co-host Brittany Bookbinder and by Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie Bagley, thanks for being back with us this week. Thanks for having me. And Brittany, thank you for being here too. Thank you. So Charlie, 
You found yourself in the middle of a trial testimony this week. It came as no surprise to you because that testimony was recorded four years ago and you were actually in the courtroom when Emily Altman testified. The thing that I was particularly struck by is here's a seemingly nice woman. And yet when she was asked whether knowing that Robert Durst had dismembered a man's body, she would agree to name him as godfather to her son. She answered enthusiastically in the affirmative. What's going on with Emily Altman, Charlie? You saw Emily on the stand. She was a bundle of nerves. This is a woman who teaches at a local synagogue. She's an employee of the synagogue, and among other things, she teaches ethics to the young people that are up for different ceremonies, whether it be a bar mitzvah or whatever. That's very important to her, probably the single most important thing in her life. And at the same time, she's struggling with loyalty to Bob and loyalty to her husband, who's a lifelong friend of Bob. And all of these things are swirling in her mind as she tries to answer every single question. And I think all that anxiety, all that tension that you see pouring out of her is her trying to reconcile these often very disparate currents. In our piece, Charlie, we surmise that Emily Altman's disclosure that Robert Durst was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's murder, that that was perhaps the single most important moment in this investigation and trial, and that that testimony probably single-handedly forced Robert Durst to acknowledge that he was not only in L.A., but that he wrote the cadaver note and that he discovered Susan Berman's body. Do you agree with that supposition? And how do you think Emily Altman feels about being pivotal to the people's case against Robert Durst? Well, I, I don't think Emily got on the stand intending to be a pivotal point, but she certainly was. As you said, this is the first time that someone put Bob in Los Angeles at the time Susan was murdered. Up until then, authorities had long known that Bob flew to San Francisco. They knew that he went up to Northern California and then got in a car and drove south. But after that, they lost his trail. And when Emily, under intense questioning, blurts out this idea... I, I thought, bam, there it is. And I think it came out as very believable because it was pretty clear she hadn't intended to say it. Really amazing, Charlie. I'm still not quite sure how you've escaped testifying at this trial, but I guess that's a story for another day. In other developments this week, Brittany, what did you make of it when Robert Durst stood up and addressed the judge yesterday? Wow. It, it was one of the more theatrical moments that have happened so far in this trial, and there have been so many. You know, it was wild. He stands up, his defense attorney, Dick DeGuerin, brushes him off and says, I don't, I don't even know why he's standing. And then when he finally was able to talk, it was one of the more lucid arguments that morning. He responded to every single thing Lewin said, so it's not doing the defense any favors in their argument that he is frail because he is just as sharp as ever. Absolutely. I half expected him to fire his lawyers on the spot and take over his own defense. 
I wouldn't be surprised. It's interesting, Charlie, because his lawyers, particularly Dick DeGaron, have spent all of this time trying to prove that Bob is feeble, is at death's door, is gravely ill, does not have the capacity to understand what's going on at trial. And then he stands up and gives probably the most lucid argument of any defense litigant in this entire trial. I found Wyndham to be shocked at how lucid and coherent Bob was in that statement. It's well known that that Bob is very concerned about how he looks to the jury. He talked about this fairly openly in Galveston, in prison phone calls and otherwise. But it's deceptive because his mind is still very much with him. Brittany, we just presented our piece on the significance of the Altman's testimony. And just today, we heard more of the testimony from Stuart Altman. What did we hear in that that added to the story we presented earlier? You know, it's interesting The the Altmans have done several interviews with television shows. And even though some of them were because Bob specifically asked them to, it's very bizarre that they have said some damning things about him on the record, including they discussed in Stuart Altman's testimony today, an interview that uh, Emily Altman did on Dateline, uh, where she said that Bob was trying to come across as frail in the Galveston trial, which he specifically said that he didn't. And the other thing that came up today during Stuart Altman's uh, conditional witness testimony was the jailhouse call that they played between him and Robert Durst when he was in jail in New Orleans. And um, it sounded a lot like Bob was admitting to being in L.A. at the time of of Susan's death. He specifically said he was having a hard time with where he was in L.A., not whether or not he was in L.A., which is something Lewin drilled down on that Stewart could not deny. Charlie Bagley, thanks again for being with us and stay away from any subpoena servers. All right. Brittany, thanks again for being with me. I look forward to doing this again next week. Always great to be here. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Brittany Bookbinder is my co-host. This episode was written and co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Passages from Robert Durst's written and spoken comments were read by actor David Kelsey. Post-production and editing was handled by Jody O'Keefe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.